What's it like raising a daughter in Ecuador? What's a good way to work remotely from another country? How do you build a new product in healthcare? These are some of the questions we ask Luther Kale, Vice President of Clinical Programs at HealthStream. HealthStream works side-by-side -side with healthcare organizations to ensure that their people are confident, competent, and credentialed according to the highest possible standards. Luther talks about how CPR training has evolved, what's going to make virtual reality a viable education technology, and how you can get customers to join you in your innovation process on this episode of the Fortune's Path podcast. Luther, it is so good to see you. Thank you for coming uh, to the Fortune's Path basement. Happy to be here. Yeah. Good to see you. It's been a while. It has been a while. Yeah, you've been very busy. So um, since we work together, you now have a seven-year-old daughter, and she lives in Ecuador. Is that right? That's correct. So tell me about how that happened. Yeah, I live in a place called Cumbaya, Ecuador. Most people think it's made up. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds great. It does sound great. It is great. Um, it's a little valley outside of Quito. Quito, mm -hmm. Ecuador is about 3 million people, and it's a capital city. It's I think it's the only one in the world where you, you land, and it's 10,000 feet up, but you see snow-capped mountains. So it's just Gosh. this amazing sort of combination of many factors but the valley is uh 70 degrees every day if and the cool thing about ecuador mm -hmm. is if there's no real seasons there they have rainy seasons and such but not really what we think of as, right. as four seasons so if you pick a nice weather spot it's it's nice all year oh my gosh yeah that sounds beautiful so I started in Ecuador. I went there 2006 for the first mm, time because yeah. I had read this article about the Valley of Longevity. Oh. This is a place where people, you know, purportedly live till they're 100 years old. Have you seen and, that? And uh, I was in marketing at the time, so I had to go see if that was real <laughs> or if it was just marketing. And what is it? Uh, it was real. Like yeah. uh, this is a place with incredibly clean air and mm -hmm. water and a lot of rich minerals in the soil mm. and. Uh, pretty low stress lifestyle, and so yeah. people. In fact, I saw lots of. I don't know if they were actually hundred, but, but they were old. definitely uh, a, a high population that was still living a vibrant life later in life, and so that's what really took me there. But yeah. uh, during my trip there, I traveled all around Ecuador, uh, specifically in the Andes Mountains, and that was the thing that just sort of vibrated with my soul. Right, I felt the the pull of the place to say one day I'm going to move back. back here and live. Yeah. So you you have worked remotely. You told me from sixteen different countries. That's right. Yeah. So what what are the how well has that worked? Um, it's been interesting because I was you know well ahead of the the remote working curve yeah, yeah. for COVID. This was right. fifteen years um, I've been doing it, and it's gotten so much better. Like yeah. there's never been a better time to do it than now. And and, and you know it sounds so basic, but the specifically the internet access is just better in so many places. We have fiber optic in mm -hmm. the big cities in Ecuador, so up down is is fine. But when I first moved there, uh, I was living in this little valley, very remote, and uh, they brought me a satellite internet dish that was about the size of a CD and I just started laughing and it was not sufficient so every week they would come back with a new dish a one. <laughs> and it got to be you know about the size of this table actually and uh, that was just barely sufficient right? but it was the biggest one in the whole town and so we've gotten a lot better with technology that's fabulous now there's a lot of like uh, hubbub about back to the office and I, I know that you know my, your current employer my former employer Bobby Frist built his dream office and it is now almost empty. Um, what, as someone who's worked in an office and worked remote, what's your opinion about the productivity differences? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I, it is. I was just there today, actually. Uh, the last several days have been meeting with partners flying in to see it, and they all observed the same thing that you just did, which is mm. this is a beautiful and how sad that it's all empty. And yeah. um, it's a gorgeous spot. It's great for convening. Uh, it's really especially great when we purposefully convene people. So in January, we had two or 300 people in, and that, it felt like the old times, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um uh, however, I mean, the timing of it was literally right before the world shut down. It was when we moved in there. So it had a very brief heyday of, of activity and <laughs> mm-hmm. moment. Um, I, you know, as, as you alluded to, I've been doing these experiments for quite some time. So about mm-hmm. 12 years ago, I convinced Bobby uh, to let me do just a little experiment with my marketing team. At the time, there was a, an idea in vogue called Row, which is results only work environment. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, they had pioneered it at Best Buy and wrote a book up on that. And so that took my attention. And and so they, they gave me the authorization to do that. What, the idea is like uh, results only work environment, work from anywhere, anytime, as long as you get the work done and, and deliver the output and the outcome. And so I rolled that out to my team and uh, every single person on my team continued to come in the office except for me. So <laughs> I maybe just <laughs> implemented that policy for myself. I remember mm-hmm. being down on Christmas in Belize and mm-hmm, <laughs> working mm-hmm. from there and thinking mm-hmm. like, I'm never going to spend another Christmas in a cold country at a cold location. And I, I don't think I have since. There you uh, go. It yeah. worked. Um, however, I think we're at this moment where executives and companies are trying to figure out what the right balance is because I'm seeing some executives start to swing back the other way to say, all right, everybody's coming back in the office. And there's mm-hmm. some examples here locally and nationally where they've done that. Yeah. Uh, not going to be too popular with certain types of workers like tech workers. Mm-hmm. So I think we're still in that wait and see period. If, if yeah. they require that, or is that going to free up new talent to <laughs> move on to other dreams, uh, that sort yeah. of thing? I do think uh, it'll never go back 100% to the way it was. I mean, people just have options, you know. Yeah. So if the options aren't presented to them and they're a valuable employee, they'll, they'll walk to where there's value. Um, but I also think... Uh, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm in a, at an advantage because, like, I actually worked there in person, knew all the people. Right. And then I can unplug and still connect with the people. I know yeah. them. We, I'm part of the culture. I've helped build that culture. Uh, however, all the new people that came in, and there were hundreds of them yeah, yeah. during the pandemic that may have never even met a person. Uh, that's a whole different, a very difficult problem to solve. That is an issue I'm, I'm hearing from uh, friends who take remote jobs is that, um, and you know a lot of them are my age, and so they've they've grown up where you developed your your relationships with people face to face in real life, as they say. Um, and now it's much more difficult to develop the political capital by doing it remote. It's like for whatever reason, you don't get the same bond when you're not with someone physically. And so to ask for something that seems risky, uh, is is tougher. It's like it's it's harder to step out when you're in a re- in a remote environment. That's what they report. Um, I don't know. What's your sense of that? Having done both. Yeah, I mean, I I think. Um I'm a fan of hybrid, but in a different way. I think most of the time when people think hybrid, they think uh, two or three days in the office a week, that sort of thing. That's not really feasible for me because I live 2,200 miles away, uh, which I just had to remind my accounting group is not a commutable distance for tax purposes. And uh, (laughs) they were were trying to, instead of reversing my expense, see if it was a taxable as part of my income. It was not. Um, However, the hybrid that I'm a fan of is more aligned with how I do it, which is I come back to the United States uh, once every quarter. 
I spent about two to three weeks, uh, very intentionally have put those two to three weeks together to pack them, stack them and rack them as the great Fred Thompson (laughs) was. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, really make a point to just stack up client meetings and partner meetings, employee meetings and, and really get that sense. I just had this last week, uh, some great brainstorming sessions and I haven't had that great brainstorming session virtually. It's not that you can't create ideas virtually. Right. It's just a more sort of maneuverable mechanism to kind of, pivot bring people in and uh really see where it goes and so I, I like the idea of you know whether it's two times a year or one time a year or four times a year or whatever it is sort of having uh it's almost like a little mini sprint right an in-person sprint if you will yeah i think one of the things back back in the um when i was with you at Hellstream years ago it was an idea factory and a lot of those ideas did come out of hallway conversation so there's a there's a downside you know, I loved my time there, so I want to say. But there's a downside to like, oh, you're right there. I'm going to tell you. I'm thinking about this thing. I'm going to tell you what's on my mind. Where you come away from those conversations when they're with leadership and you're like, oh, shit, I got to change my whole agenda. Yeah. Everything I've been doing is wrong. And it can be very um, uh, just frustrating. And uh, so there is that excitement of the shared conversation, but it takes a while to understand what that is. I'm wondering if you have those less frequently and if you have them more intentionally. So is it more valuable to have the, the water cooler brainstorming intentionally four times a year than unintentionally potentially any day of the year? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's two pieces to it. Uh, another example I'll give is on our customer journey and customer interactions, um, we put together um, a council that meets in person once a year and it's an innovation council it's limited to 25 people it's you know leaders from different uh, organizations across the country and we come together with a very specific theme it may be resuscitation rates have been the same for 50 years and we're not saving any more people prices are going up for that how do we improve that situation like the whole focus of that council and committee is Let's move the needle. Let's start saving mm-hmm. some more lives. Let's bring mm-hmm. down prices. Let's make better programs. Let's innovate. And so we've been meeting every year for four, once a year in person. Uh, the same group, uh, we bring in some new people from time to time, but it's a group that's focused on this problem for five years now. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've made a dent. Uh, when we first started, we had a blank roadmap and some ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in those sessions, we ideate, to your point, it's probably more things than you could actually accomplish. So part of the session is built in is really prior prioritizing to say, well, first, let's uh, build a better mousetrap. You know, let's create an alternative BLS, ALS, and PALS program for people to learn that skill. And then secondly, after mm-hmm. we do that, mm-hmm. uh, let's focus on preventing cardiac arrest. Let's not wait till they go down and, and being able to resuscitate them. Like, there's 400,000 people a year that are dying that don't need to die because they deteriorate and it's not caught. And mm-hmm. so we've mm-hmm. just built a little roadmap and got priority from the group and use that to sort of sequence our effort. I mean, honestly, Tom, it's like a probably a seven-year roadmap. You know, it's not, these are solving big problems. It's not quick fixes, you know, so we have to prioritize and get feedback. So that's one piece of it, which I think the intentional once a year, uh, we've started to put in this year and in November, we'll do our first uh, sort of virtual filler session where we can actually stay in touch every Mm -hmm. six months and and Mm -hmm. update on progress. Right. Um, But the other thing, the water cooler thing, I was thinking about that last night, actually, the biggest challenge I've seen, this is specifically for that tranche of people that joined during the pandemic Mm -hmm. 
that they are missing out on key learnings that you and I sort of just picked up by osmosis. Like if we were in a meeting, well, I'll give you an example. If the marketing guy came in and said, you know, we in our industry in healthcare, the joint commission is a big entity big and, and it's a big deal. And so if, if that, and that person says in a meeting with all our sales team, the, and he messes up instead of calling it the joint commission, calls it the great commission. <laughs> and, and, you know, like after the meeting, I'd pull him aside and be like, dude, like you can't say that in front of the sales team. They'll, they'll cut you to pieces. And so uh, instead, in the virtual world, that just never gets addressed. Like, I just move on to my next team meeting and everybody else does, too. And so the poor guy is, you know, getting up in his TED Talk seven years later talking about the Great Commission. And it's, it's awkward for everyone. <laughs> That's a really good point. That it's like, it, is, it is more difficult to give feedback in the moment in a virtual environment because there is no meeting after the meeting. Um, and there's no pre-meeting either. And, and then you can, you know ask managers to be more intentional about it. So I'm keeping notes on people, but it's still not as spontaneous in context. You know, like right. it's like the old uh, George Costanza when he thinks of the joke that was funny, you know, mm -hmm. many weeks later, it's like mm -hmm. that, like, mm -hmm. Hey, I want to talk to you about something I think you can get better at. But that was also three weeks ago. Right. And I was like, why are you bringing this up now? This is awkward. Right? right. Instead of just right after that meeting, a little quick thing, no big deal. And we move on. I d um, that's a really interesting point about, you could see why managers want everybody to come back. One is that you can see them. And the other one is that it makes the jobs of the managers easier. Uh, but I'll say that uh, there are people who absolutely depend upon their jobs being remote. For other you have an elderly parent, someone you're taking care of, you have a young kid, lots and lots of reasons. And some of them are just, it's so much cheaper than commuting. You know, I don't have to have two cars necessarily, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I think that's a big deal in Nashville. I mean, the cost yeah. of living has gone up so much uh, that people – uh, do save a lot of money from not having to do that. Yeah. So, so you're going to call me back in the office. Are you going to pay me anymore? You know, cause you're, you've just, um, taken my, my real income and, and giving it a whack. I'm, to come full circle to your opening question about my daughter. So I yeah, used, yeah. I used to have a configuration where I was mostly in Nashville and mm -hmm. would occasionally or frequently even mm -hmm. go to Ecuador mm -hmm. for weeks at a time and then come back. And uh, I did that for a year or two years, maybe three. And uh, that was really difficult for me with a daughter in another country. Um, I felt like I had a divided heart. <laughs> yeah. um, I loved my work and, and I poured myself into it. I loved my daughter, but I couldn't be with her as much. And um, I reversed that configuration to now where I live there. And most of my time is there and with her and working there. And then come back occasionally, like as I mentioned, that Arrangement has been 1,000% better for my happiness, my health and well-being, and uh, I would even say my productivity. Yeah. Well, I think all of us are, are more productive when we're happier. Um, I think that um, yeah, when you have something weighing on you, you just you, we're all human. You can't help but have that affect your work. There's some expectation that work is totally separate from life or has been in the past, and that's complete bullshit. You know, you can't, I don't believe you can separate them. Agreed. Um, so I, I want to go back and talk a little bit about some of the cool stuff that you're doing. You mentioned that innovation group, the 25. So I want to give a little background on what that's about. It's, uh, I'm going to call it CPR training. So this is resuscitation for anybody listening who doesn't know is like, it's um, pumping somebody's chest. You used to call it mouth to mouth. I don't think we do mouth to mouth anymore. Um, and it's trying to keep the heart going after it's stopped. Um, so you're beginning to use virtual reality in that training. Is that correct? Yep, that's right. What? Tell me what you've seen with 
you know, VR is kind of a punchline. Uh, certainly the metaverse is a punchline. Where do you see it in education? Yeah, we actually have, there's actually a kind of a multiple modes of simulation and immersion in CPR training programs now. And it is having a moment. I mean, I think there were several million people watching on January 2nd when DeMar Hamlin went down on NFL Monday Night Football mm-hmm. with a cardiac arrest. And his team did perfectly. That professional mm-hmm. medical team realized it was more than a football injury immediately and that his heart had stopped mm-hmm. and did uh, resuscitating for eight minutes. And then uh, they put him in an ambulance and took him to the hospital. They had to resuscitate him again there. And um, that team was trained by the American Red Cross in CPR and CPR and sort of knew the signs and jumped in. So every healthcare professional in the United States and our health system and our hospitals uh, needs to have a certification that they can do CPR if they're on the clinical side of things. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very important function in our U.S. healthcare system that they have that card and maintain it and that they train effectively in it and get better. So the, the first wave of innovation over the last, let's say, 15 years ago was the introduction of uh, mannequins that talk to you, you know, so mm-hmm. you're pressing on an actual mannequin and say, hey, you need to press harder, your hands are in the wrong place, mm-hmm. uh, those kinds of things. And that was a big advance. Uh, that was uh, the kind of wave one, what I think of. Now, what happened uh, was you could be making three mistakes and that voice could only tell you to correct one thing at a time and it might take three compressions. So you could be 10 compressions in by the time you've mm-hmm. corrected the th- all the things and you're not even sure if you've caught up, you know, so mm-hmm. It was good, but really visual feedback is more instant. And so the the next wave of, of innovation we've introduced uh, starts to t- tap on the technologies you're talking about. But even the mannequins themselves improved where there's blood flow and you can see the brain perfusion. You see the blood going from the heart and the, wow. the brain light up. And a lot of people, even medical professionals that have been doing CPR and CPR training, like, mm-hmm. oh, they, it was a light bulb going off. Like, I never really understood that my whole purpose is like to get blood to the brain. And now you can see it happening. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was in the – Vance and the mannequins. On the virtual side, we really focused first on leadership and team leadership because mm-hmm. it's not just uh, the compressions and the ventilations. It's also if you're the person leading the other five people on this crew, how well are you keeping things on time? Are you switching the people out when they get tired? Is the mm-hmm. medication mm-hmm. on track? Uh, those are usually doctors that are leading that. And um, so we created that one because it's a stressful situation. It's, it's, it's almost like all your emergency training, military training. Those have all been great applications of VR. And really, a lot of that technology came out of the DOD mm-hmm. because they're training in realistic scenarios. So you want really the right amount of stress. You don't want just a little easy check the box, flip through some PowerPoints to call it a day. And you also don't want to be so stressful that you panic and you don't learn anything. So that's where VR, I think, is the sweet spot in, in medical and uh, so our first attempt has been to train team leaders, and we did this in multiple hospitals and health systems and all ages and all groups. And I was kind of just watching to see how people took to it. And uh, in most all cases, I was surprised that the older generation, because there's a lot older generation of nurses that are kind of going to the end of their career and then on the way to retirement, they really embrace this thing. I mean, they've done, I, that was a big shock to me. It would be shocks me yeah, too. There, there were a couple still that were like, I can't do it. Uh, but my, by and large, um, they've been through, gosh, in their career, you have to do it every two years. So they, they may have done it 20 times, right? Yeah. And it's been same all, same all. And so for them to experience the newness of it, they were saying things like, this is the most realistic and best version of this training I've ever had. You know, So that was uh, That's kind of rewarding. Cool. However, the, the healthcare industry as a whole is not there yet. So right. like any product adoption curve, you know, you've got a few innovators trying to figure it out. And um 
I would say that one uh, product line was the most impacted by the COVID stoppage. Uh, mm-hmm. I was I was down in a hospital in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, had just finished the piloting that technology with them. They loved it. And I think it was the very next day the world shut down. Yeah. Uh, so there were two years that we had trouble getting back in hospitals to set up those labs to get the feedback. And yeah. even during that time, Facebook also decided to shut down their Facebook for business program. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so the tools to administer it in administrative uh, settings like healthcare systems uh, was diminished or reduced. And so, you know, there's still some catching up to do. What do you see as the biggest barrier to adoption for – so I'd say as, a, as someone with a background in education, VR in an education uh, setting makes total sense. You learn something. The more closely something is taught to you to the situation where you'll apply it, the better you learn it. Um, it's a little bit like you know if you're learning how to play golf, you're out on the course, and you hit someone's there with you. It's easier to apply it than if you're watching a PowerPoint about playing golf. Um, so VR is kind of the, the same thing. It can take what are stressful, dangerous situations and make them where anybody can experience them in a safe environment where you get feedback. Um, so the idea that this would have a positive benefit on training totally makes sense to me. But the adoption of it is like, first of all, the masks are really the, – the headset just looks stupid. Yeah. And uh, so I'm wondering, what are the um, what are the barriers to adoption? Yeah, we've done some experiments with the different headsets, as you mm-hmm. mentioned. Well, mm-hmm. I don't even know if Hololens is still going to be a thing. I think mm-hmm. they killed it, but mm-hmm. we had that one. We had mm-hmm. the Oculus. You know, we had uh, all the Microsoft mixed reality ones. We had adapted our programs to all of them and just experimented with them. But like the Hololens was really cool and great at certain things, but the field of view was very limited, you know, and they, they never really moved past that where there's, you know, just like your horse with blinders on right. essentially. Mm-hmm. And so while it was good at certain things, it wasn't complete enough to like fix the whole thing. I think the price has come down. So that barrier, uh, you know, has been mm-hmm. removed with a sort of Oculus Questy type stuff mm-hmm. uh, where the price point makes sense. Uh, a lot of the health systems I talk to, their their dream is more along the lines of what you articulated, which is really just embedded in every unit. Um, mm-hmm. Again, that's, mm-hmm. an, that's an evolution in education that mm-hmm. would uh, greatly help to your point, because it's contextual. So mm-hmm. they, they have the idea in the past of sim centers and like places you have to go specifically to learn things. And uh, this yes. would really take the things you need to learn to where you already are, yeah. uh, which is the dream. Uh, it hasn't, it still happened, I think, because of some of the administrative tools just aren't uh, game time ready yet. But that problem will be solved here shortly, I think. Mm-hmm. I, so it sounds like Culture is not necessarily a barrier to the adoption of VR. It's not like uh, maybe I'm the only person embarrassed by it. Um, and it, so, is that reasonable to say you think culturally we're ready? It's really a tech tech issue. Yeah, I mean the the other surprising thing I had from from one of my pilots was we had a sort of self directed. Um, a VR session where there's no voice, uh, like you can choose, like you can choose for it to interact with voice or no voice. And we chose no voice and I saw some shiny, cool toys with voice. And I was like, oh man, we should have done voice. Cause that's like part of the realistic mm-hmm. experience. Uh, however, when I was actually in the training environment in the lab and they were putting six people through this program, um, they're all in different scenarios of, 
and uh, different patient loads and six people were going through there. It was like a library in there. Mm -hmm. Like it was quiet Mm -hmm. as a mouse. And if anybody had been talking, it would have been distracting to the learning environment. So Mm -hmm. in that particular setup and case, I was pretty glad we didn't use voice, you know, because it wouldn't have, the whole thing wouldn't have worked. It would have come off the wheel. So there's a lot of little small operational details like that one and and the headsets. And if they go down and how do you get them back Mm -hmm. up and Mm -hmm. how do you update content to them? Like if some new regulation comes out and the content has to update, like all those little problems that have been solved, you know, with content and content Mm -hmm. engines also Mm -hmm. need to be solved in VR to be, you know, completely viable. You see, um, so one of the things that's bedeviled educators for years is measurement. And, uh, so e-learning for a long time, but about the only measurement there was was multiple choice tests. And uh, we have progressed somewhat beyond that. Um, do you see VR helping with the measurement problem of being yeah, able the, to show? The, almost the VR is the opposite problem. Yeah, like, yeah. It literally mm-hmm. measures everything. Right, so right. it's a more a matter of, of what needles do you want to pull out of the haystack? I mean, it's tracking your eye movement and exactly where you're looking and how you're responding to everything. And obviously, some of that information can be interesting or it could be helpful even if aggr- aggregated, uh, but it's it's way too much data. And so the, the challenge is more to under – like I, I worked with a couple of medical – academic medical institutions that are tra- – doing these eye tracking studies and all this stuff. And, you know, I'm, I'm a practical guy, Tom. So I'm mm-hmm. just like, what are they going to do with all that information? I don't I know. Do. I don't know. It's like <laughs> no idea. They, they, they bolted on some of the stuff I liked in their proposal to actually measure clinical outcomes and see yeah. is like this thing making a difference. But it was really anchored in like all this crazy, you know, shark laser beam eye things. things. <laughs> I still can't wrap my head around. Yeah, I do feel that, um, you know, particularly in education, technology is off, often a distraction. And um, to your point about there being opportunities for bells and whistles where um, you need to understand the context in which it's being used to make the decision that it's like, let's not do voice. That's going to make, that's going to be, make adoption easier. And in terms of measurement, it's like, okay, okay, we can measure where their eyes are going, but we, what's the point? No one cares. We don't, we don't know any information from that. I mean, if you, if eye gazing with you, like would Mm -hmm. help improve clinical outcomes, then I'm, then I'm interested in that. Right. (laughs) Right, exactly. So, but, I mean, but yeah, I do. I do think there's some pretty awesome uses of VR. I mean, one of the things we were doing with the with the Hololens uh, experiment, mm-hmm. if you will, mm-hmm. was looking at very high risk pregnancy situations, mm-hmm. and so they they're. Not incidents that happen very frequently, but they're mm-hmm. very, very high risk when they happen. For instance, like if the baby is turned sideways, you know, and like, can I experiment with uh, getting that in and getting it out? And um, that's going to be a well, very different experience on the screen, you know, just clicking things yeah. versus it is in a virtual reality or even with mannequins or a mm-hmm. team, you know, mm-hmm. simulating it. And so mm-hmm. I do think there's great value in, in practicing. I mean, you know, you worked at HealthStream for some time and mm-hmm. they've got millions of data points that basically say in some format uh, that you can get an 89 on a particular test about a subject mm-hmm. and then there's data from the hospital side saying I'm sorry uh, nurse Jane doesn't know what she's doing like yeah. how do we close the gap between those things the only right. way is to practice like in the healthcare environment practice sometimes means a preceptor and you're following somebody and they're coaching you and that's great uh, There's it's the whole spectrum you know you could mm-hmm. practice uh, a scenario with a pillow in a bed with a team right. or it could be a hundred thousand dollar simulator that gives birth or it could mm-hmm. be virtual reality but we have to practice the scenarios i mean one, one of the um 
uh, industries that we look to as an analog is mm-hmm. is essentially the airline industry. You know, that used to be uh, unsafe as hell. Like you right. hear a 737 go down and that's a whole city. Boom. You know, mm-hmm. and um, that has now the safest way to travel as yes. an airplane. And how do they change it? Well, they did it with data. They have a black box in every airplane and it measures exactly why they went down. And so we knew the top 10 reasons. Number one was they missed the landing envelope. And uh, you, they get a pilot in every six months and make them do all the checklists to, to mm-hmm. make sure that they can beat it. And so um, that's something that hasn't really happened, for example, in resuscitation um, mm-hmm. and many different safety areas in hospitals. And, and part of the barrier there has been legal discovery, interestingly enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah they don't mm-hmm. want to – nobody really wants to publicize that, uh, you know, if somebody died that didn't need to die, nobody's going to talk about that. But really that what needs to happen is a culture that – shares that information internally without the fear of being sued uh, so they can get better at it. I mean, right. as a country, we got to get better at it. Yeah. I think um, there's a lot to um, there's a lot to those comments about the collecting of the data, the using of the data to create content. I was um, so back when I was at Hellstream, one of the principles was platform content data and that uh, you had a platform that allowed you to put content into every hospital in the country and, and some, you know, many subacute uh, environments. And then you would uh, license content to them. Back then we used to talk about basic cable and then premium channels. Um, and then you could use, uh, the data would be to interpret, what should I do about this? Um, I'm wondering if, uh, how VR potentially changes that platform content data uh, strategy, or if it's like, no change at all. It's just an evolution. Well, again, I think the the to lean in on the data part for a mm-hmm. second. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just another area ripe for misuse. You know, so mm-hmm. how can we use that in a way that helps prioritize what the problem is? I, t- I talked to one CNO recently who said, basically, I don't want to see another dashboard unless it's configured like this, like a warning light that you just screwed up <laughs> something and it's blinking red at me, and then the second thing, what do I do about it? That's, that's all right. they wanted oh, to want. see. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And we create all these dashboard that looks like you know stock market mm-hmm. charts. It's like I got 17 things in my portfolio and they're all Mm -hmm. equally weighted and I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. And so there's a lot of danger there as well. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. the airline industry example I gave is they use the top 10 there and they prioritize it and we have to do the same thing in in medical. So just last year, the Joint Commission started requiring in January every hospital to do two things. One, to measure, actually collect the real world data from the resuscitations and document that they've done it. And then two, to analyze it and have some group that's looking at it. And so I think that will turn out to be a bellwether moment in time. Mm-hmm. Now, as mm-hmm. you know, from having worked in it, healthcare industry is, isn't the uh, sprinter, you know, is not the Usain Bolt of, no. of industries. No. And so mm-hmm. it's, you know, there's, as always, some people that are ahead of that curve and, mm-hmm. and killing it. And then there's other people that are, you know, still just looking around waiting to see who's going to get dinged first and how severely are they going to enforce that? And am I going to have to do it in three years or this year or when? And just waiting, you know, so what we try to do at our organization is at least identify the innovators and, and start getting out ahead of these things so that when everybody else catches up, they have tool sets and how do you ways identify, that they I mean, how do you do identify that. those people? That sort of co-creation of product is really Yeah, those really innovation difficult. councils, like I talked about, yeah. is one great way to do that because mm-hmm. those are the people that, that care, <laughs> yes. so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, um, but when you're putting that innovation council together, 
how do you decide who to ask? And talk to me just very practically. Like, what is your asking process? Because everybody's busy. How do you get yep. them to agree? Um, it, it's it's a good question. I, I think it's a little bit art and a little bit science. Um, I hand selected many of those people myself. Um, with the idea in mind of how they might interact with each other. So it wasn't even just that they're with this big system or that. It was like, okay, that person is kind of a muckraker and uh, is going to throw, you know, little Molotov cocktails in our ideas. And that's good. I like yeah. that. I don't yeah. want all of my, all the members to do that because you to. would never move it forward. Mm -hmm. But I think kind of, Keeping the group small enough where you can make those sort of handcrafted decisions, if you will, hmm. and creating it is important for a council like that. If it was 125 people, right. it wouldn't have the same impact and ability. I think in some ways it's like it's closer to throwing a dinner party. You're trying to figure out. I like that analogy. Yeah, that they you want people who can talk to each other, who are going to get along, find one another interesting, and are going to talk to you. Um, and. So the, the reason that they'll continue to – the first time they'll go is it's flattering to be invited to something. You know, you put this in my LinkedIn or whatever. So, but if it's boring or it doesn't feel like it's going anywhere, you'll go to one, maybe two. Um, and so there has to be some emotional buy-in from them. One, like, so one of the things Bobby used to talk about that I always loved was inviting customers to come on the journey. Come on the journey with us. We're going on a journey. Come on. Let's all – Go on a journey. One, one thing that was so great about that is that it directs everybody towards the future. And so whatever thing is, is bugging you today, you can go, don't worry about that. You know, come with us on the journey. That's going to be okay. Let's not get bogged down on those kinds of details. Let's talk about the big picture. And I feel like that approach in healthcare um, can be extremely effective. Yeah, we've gotten um, we put a lot of work into making them valuable. That's the mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. that is my litmus test of when mm -hmm. we're creating the agenda, when we're getting mm -hmm. speakers, when we're putting all that discussion topics together. Mm -hmm. Is mm -hmm. is is the CNO that came to this thing going to walk away and say, uh, "I'm really glad I just spent six hours doing that." Like yeah. that was a great use of my time. If they don't say that like enthusiastically, we've missed the mark. And so far, they've said it enthusiastically. And I think part of the reason for that is the journey comment that you talked about mm -hmm. because over time you do see it's not just a bunch of bs it's not just a bunch of twirling and you know putting your name on a resume it is actually working together with industry partners uh, uh, associations medical doctors everybody that sort of can both express what needs to be done but fund the ideas and you start to see in 2018 we had a blank roadmap you know in 2023 i've got nine logos and of organizations contributing to that and seven new products that didn't exist five years ago and so yeah. you can actually tangibly see as a member of that council like i you know no single person made that happen it couldn't happen it's a consortium it's an ecosystem right. and but yet my participation is critical because i help make that happen i'm you know can, yeah. can raise my hand and feel good about that so let's talk a little bit about that uh, process of developing and launching products, um, you you were referring to the new resuscitation product that Hellstream released. So they'd had a long-term relationship with a partner that went south and then needed to find an alternative in what felt like a monopolized market. Can you talk to me a little bit about how the new resuscitation product was developed? Yeah, that was a fun process. I mean, essentially... Uh, there's probably two places that Hellstream, you know, constantly finds new ideas for how to make things better in the industry. And w one of them is just plain inefficiency. Like if you see there's so many processes that are still done by paper and you're still amazed that it's 2023 and people even use paper. Um, 
but over time, we've identified all these places where even like Hellstream has a whole arm of, of credentialing business. And that, you, you know, still in some organizations, they have people who are just calling to verify that this doctor went to Duke University and this doctor has this credential uh, in BLS and a- ALS and this other credential that they say they've had so that they can privilege them to do surgery X, Y, Z. Like that was and still is in a lot of places a manual process. It doesn't need to be. Like that's mm-hmm. a great place for technology to mm-hmm. sort of lean in and and solve the problem. And so and the second category uh which went this was this one, it was truly a monopoly. Like there was only one provider and only one way to do it in the market. I mean, we're talking 96% market share. Oof. And what happened was as a result of that um was essentially that there's no incentive in a monopoly to improve things and prices keep going up. So Hellstream was really in the middle going back to our customers saying, hey, guess what? Prices went up 3% this year, 5%, 7%. And at the same time, the product itself wasn't evolving or innovating, even though we had eight or nine years of data back from customers saying, hey, we'd like to see this. We'd like to see that. We'd like to. Yeah, we would too. <laughs> and um, so it just got to that sort of breaking point where it wasn't about a partner specific. It was about the dynamic in the market. And so Hellstream decided to play a catalyst role mm-hmm. to say, in this case, we're going to bring choice and change to the market. And uh, by doing that, we know from history that two things will happen. You know, w- one is uh, that prices will come down. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll just put price competitive. And then secondly is innovation will start happening again. You know, and both of those things have happened. You know, so the winner in that equation is the customers, right? No matter right. what. It doesn't right. even matter who they choose at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, their prices are going to be better and their product's going to be better. And so that's been a very exciting journey. It's It's been also very interesting sort of, you know, going into market in, in that kind of market environment against right. a near monopoly. Um, mm-hmm. What you what you had seen was in the 90s, there were all these sort of fly-by-night operations that came up that were like, hey, get your resuscitation credential online. You know, you pay yeah. them 100 bucks and you don't do anything and you get mm-hmm. your credential. And so it was real mm-hmm. shady. Mm-hmm. And um, so what happened as a counter response to that was a lot of organizations, even at the state level, at the federal level, organizational level, would write into their policy the vendor's name <laughs> mm-hmm. that uh, was required in order to do it. So we were coming into a competitive environment where now we had a credible alternative. It's backed by the international uh, liaison on resuscitation, ILCOR, science. Uh, that's an international body. And it was you know, generated by the Red Cross's Scientific Advisory Council, which has 50 members of that really put in all the research to make sure this is the best and latest science for how mm-hmm. to resuscitate, how to educate. And so it was very credible. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we were going into state environments where it's like, uh, yeah, you can't sell that product here because the regulations say it's got to be this one product that used to exist. And the only reason that existed was because they were trying to counter that sort of shadiness. And so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we actually had to fight a lot of policy bot- battles oh, in wow. order to open up all these markets. And yeah. uh, it got to be weird and interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, we've 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 now won all those battles. It's in mm-hmm. 50 states and a million people have gone through it and have their credentials. So it's it's been a big success. But it's, uh, you know, did every you use, day was interesting. Did you use the Monopoly story? Story, uh, as a way to win those um, state house fights? Nope. Nope. Well, how, how, did you, how did you win those fights? We, we won the. We won those fights on the scientific credibility uh, mm. of the program. Right. Uh, for example, the U.S. military, all active branches, had mm-hmm. switched 
mm-hmm. to the American Red Cross program. Mm-hmm. Every single person coming out of every branch of the military was coming out of that. And then as HealthStream continued to make progress in mm-hmm. some of the larger health systems in the country, right. switching to that program, again, because of the innovation, the right. cost change, right. um, we continued to kind of pile that evidence back. So it was a virtuous, uh, positive cycle. So you would, um, and I guess there's also some momentum behind that. So it's like Colorado says it's okay to get it from Red Cross. Then you send a letter to the whoever the regulator is in, in Connecticut and say, oh, Colorado is just said That's it's right. okay. And so it starts to build momentum because it's getting the first one to switch is probably the first two or three. Are right. Excruciating. And then after that, it begins to get a well, little Well, it was, uh, I, I remember being on one of those policy boards in, in the state mm-hmm. of Texas, and it mm-hmm. was uh, it was dicey down there to the last second. Uh, somebody, you know, it was a little like, uh, I, f- I felt like it was a little bit like if you, we worked in Washington, D.C. and we're in the political world, because right at the last minute, one member on the board is asking a question that's completely irrelevant, trying to derail the approval so that they'll say something like, hey, let's delay that vote and until next time, which might be a year from now, and a year matters. Um and so, you know, we had a counter move for that, which was, mm-hmm. you know, calling the, the director that's leading the meeting while he's leading the meeting and texting mm-hmm. him and getting it back on track. And so it's it's uh, it's a challenging when you sort of enter those waters. But I remember when we got it, it was – I hadn't really done that much myself, uh, but, but I felt like I just, you know, gave birth. It was like I was sweating, I was relieved, and I was also glad that I didn't go into politics. Yeah. I mean, it's um – it's stage management. And I think a lot of things about, so that sort of leads to the question about launching products. We talked about the development of that product came out of a very, um, an established need and that there was already innovation from a scientific and research standpoint that wasn't making it to market in the dominant product. Um, and so there was an opportunity to, to improve the experience and the outcome by applying this, what was at that time sort of dormant knowledge. Um, now you you've got your a better mousetrap, and but the um, the market is used to the old one. Uh, how did you approach that to build adoption and get people excited about it? Or was there already a certain sort of built up resentment? Like they were like, you know, I've been using this thing for twenty years. The price keeps going up. It's really not any better. Yeah, the, these numbers aren't exactly right, but mm-hmm. it, it's mm-hmm. indicative. So I mm-hmm. would say. You know, 25% is just going to say, I'm staying with the old no matter what you tell me, no matter how great it is, Mm -hmm. no matter how much money it saves me, I'm with the old. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, Uh, 25%, to your point, had some either resentment built up or or they're just ready to try something better or new, Mm -hmm. 25% ready to experiment. And then probably the rest, 50%, Mm -hmm. they don't really care one way or another. They're just waiting to see how the chips fall, you know, Mm -hmm. so – we just made an effort to engage strongly in that first 25% first and mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. get the momentum because it was a matter of reflecting. I mean, I, I remember the first time I built a map. It was like kind mm-hmm. of the like the first season of The Simpsons. I don't know if you've ever gone back and watched that, but the, no. the animation is really crude. The yeah. voices aren't really as good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it really evolves over time and gets a lot more polished. And so I, I created the Simpsons version of the, the map mm-hmm. and we had mm-hmm. sold eight. You know, mm-hmm. So I had eight stars on the map. Uh, I yeah. put little red cross crosses on there Mm -hmm. and it was very rudimentary but it started the feedback loop you know where i could reflect that back to other organizations put 14 on there 20 and and now i think there's over five thousand facilities i can't even keep up with i can't even map them anymore you know so but part of that was just you got to start where you start you know you start with seven you start Mm -hmm. with eight fifteen thousand i feel like those initial customers are absolutely critical um 
Did you guys have to give it away at any point? Was there a point where it was like, just please, God, we we're, did we'll not. give it to you for free? Yeah, we did not. But you might remember the price had been going up. So mm-hmm. price was a big uh, factor in mm-hmm. launching successfully. Mm-hmm. And so you did. You never gave it away, but you may have sold it at a discount. Correct. Do you believe in things like loss leaders, that some things are worth selling even if you might not make money on them? I do. Mm-hmm. And what are the right circumstances for them? Trying to think, like I was working with a partner today, where mm-hmm. you know there's th- a thousand critical access hospitals that are rural in our mm-hmm. nation, and they mm-hmm. don't have access to the same kind of resources as ba- <laughs> the big mm-hmm. systems that we're mm-hmm. used to here in mm-hmm. in the city, in Nashville, and all the big cities. Mm-hmm. And they're they're struggling. I mean, they don't get uh, the best pricing for any programs. They don't get uh, they don't have all their latest technology necessarily. Uh, they sometimes need the educational programs even more than the big centers. And yet they're most disadvantaged because they are not buying in bulk. Um, And so one of the things that we've started to do is to say, how how can we put together special programs just for them Mm -hmm. to make sure the need is met? Um, You know, one of the ways we're starting to do that this year is through uh, buying technology, you know, where they can pool together with others and say, basically, for the next 90 days, we're, we're going to give you the best price in the nation on this stuff if you get in now and uh, make sure you have access to it. And part of that really just becomes publicizing it to them. Make sure that you're working through the association so all the members know. You're working through your own marketing channels to make sure that they know so they don't miss out on it because it would be, you know, kind of a travesty if six months later they're like, I would have done that. I didn't know about that. Yeah. Like, now I got to pay what the full price, you know. So right. the idea would be, like, are there specific pockets where it does make sense to, you know, the the goal is to get people what they need. It's not to, like, maximize your, your profit on those segments. It's to mm-hmm. also say, We've got already got this thing, and we can help them. There's also a tr- so those small hospitals um, don't have a lot of money, but they have a lot of political capital, and there's a a lot of benefit of um, doing a doing a solid for rural hospitals because there are an awful lot of people in Congress who have a little hospital in their district, and uh, just numerically it adds up. Um, and to your point, I feel like so much healthcare is politics. Uh, more than fifty percent of every dollar uh, in reimbursement in healthcare comes from a government entity, state or federal. I, well, I was, uh, I guess, it was the end of last year, speaking at a, a conference for the VA. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think there was a single presentation there that I watched. I probably watched eight to nine mm-hmm. of them mm-hmm. that didn't start or focus with mm-hmm. that market in mind and specifically mm-hmm. call out mm-hmm. their plan for rural hospitals. It's mm-hmm. a, it was a big focus of, of the VA as well. Yeah. I mean, because the uh, VA is in the same situation of um, their funding is dependent upon Congress. And so they're trying to appeal to as many Congress people as they can. Um, so I want to wrap things, things up with uh, a couple of questions that are um, some that are make you reflect about what you do differently. But before I get to that, one of the things I always loved about working with you is that you have really good taste in software. And there's so much bad software in the world. What's some software that you're using now that you're excited about? I don't know, man. I've, I've like, oh, so I used to be the guy that like, you know, tried 35 productivity yeah, yeah. apps and would try yeah. this one and mm-hmm. try that one. And mm-hmm. um, I've really gone minimalist, you know. I just try to use as few things as possible, I guess you could say. So I, I use the Things app on my iPhone. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really well-designed piece of software because it's super simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, the main thing I want when I'm trying to download my ideas is, is speed, <laughs> you know, like just so I don't lose them because 
I know from experience, if I don't write them down, I will lose them. And so things is really agile at doing that, but it's, it's sort of one of those secret powerful things, you know, it's like, um, it does a lot more than you would think. It looks simple on the surface, but it really, you can manage lots of projects and they can be embedded in each other and they can have sub checklists, but it does all that in a visually simple way. So you're not overwhelmed. Like, Oh my God, there's way too many options. Like, I try, I try I experimented with that, with that notion. Uh, yeah, I've tried that noting, too. And, it, and to me, it just was so complicated. I don't know. I might, I, maybe I'm just getting old, Tom. I mean, it was. Me <laughs> I think. I think if I had more free time right. to be more of a geek like I used to, I probably would love Notion. Yeah. Uh, but in the end, I just stayed with Evernote because it did everything mm-hmm. I needed. Like it made yeah. bullet points. It made one, two, threes. Mm-hmm. It made mm-hmm. bold. I could send it out. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've just gone a lot more minimalist and simple. Mm-hmm. So things is your is one of your uh, things three. That's thing, called things yeah. three. Yeah, that's a good one. I like that one. Um, yeah, I, I, I've uh, and believe it or not, like I, I, you know, I've always kind of leaned to Apple, but mm-hmm. over time, I really do think Microsoft's come a long way with their core suite, even just the basic Outlook. Mm-hmm. Like I used to, I used to bristle at like having to use mm-hmm. the Outlook suite and mm-hmm. uh, PowerPoint and Word and all those. Uh, they've really made a lot of progress making those just sort of efficient and you know, sleek. Well, I think yeah. I, I really think they get an undeserved reputation because mm-hmm. some of the features built in those things are incredible. I yeah. mean, it's not even bloatware. It's just like whoever invented the copy paste feature, the paint feet, paint mm-hmm. uh, format feature. Like, mm-hmm. I want to go, you know, gift that person twenty bucks <laughs> on the internet. Like, <laughs> I want to buy him an Italian meal or something. They probably don't, don't need twenty bucks. <laughs> no, they probably don't. <laughs> probably don't. At this That's point. the best feature ever. Yeah. <laughs> copy and Format, format. Th- format this like this is like already this. formatted. Yeah, that's it, is, it is a pretty good one. That's absolutely true. So I want to uh, think a little bit about your um, – you've had a lot of different jobs in technology. You've been uh, in marketing. You've been in uh, product management. You've been in strategy. Um, when you look back at the beginning of your career, uh, do you have any regrets? Is there anything you do differently? Well, interestingly, like I started in sales and Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. every four months I meet with the interns at our company now. We've got over a thousand people. So I get a chance to sort of reconnect with uh, Mm -hmm, what mm -hmm. life was like when you're just Mm -hmm. starting out Mm -hmm. and you're trying to think through how to navigate your career. And so it's fun for me because it, uh, you know, they, they ask questions and I get to kind of coach them and give them some thoughts and on these kinds of topics. And I always tell people, um, if they have an opportunity to go in sales and start in sales or try sales as a summer job or all that, I really, really recommend that. I hope my daughter goes to do that. The reason is because as an entrepreneur, as a business leader, as a manager, like it's, you just need to understand that feeling of like, that's what puts food on the table. Like you got to sell something. And, um, I remember my very first experience as a salesperson. I went to the account. I think I might have even worn a suit, Tom. Like that was back mm-hmm. when people wore suits to, you know, look That's professional a long, and long do time things. Ago. <laughs> and I showed up and they slid an agenda across the thing. I was all, you know, mm-hmm. thinking I'm shiny, like big man, uh, account mm-hmm. manager, or whatever mm-hmm. it was called. And uh, the first thing on the thing was recommendation, uh, cancel contract immediately and get full refund. And so that was my introduction into sales. And that was obviously a very uncomfortable moment. But those are moments you need, honestly, mm-hmm, to grow, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to understand what it's like to be on the front line, answer very difficult questions. Um, that's helped me as a product person and to launch products, to having had that experience to think through. Because what I see now, I've launched many different products through many different sales teams, and that always can feel that nervousness when I'm first introducing a new product. Like, you, you know, you want to think that their response is going to be, this is awesome. Like, I'm going to make my quota. I'm going to like, change the world. 
definitely. But what you really feel is that sweat nervousness Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. like, I'm going to be sitting in front of an OR director or an OB nurse, Mm -hmm. and she's going to ask me some question that I have no idea about, and I'm going to look like a dumbass. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the real thing that they're. Mm -hmm. So it helps me think through in advance um, Mm -hmm. and maybe even ask some of those OR nurses and OB nurses, like, what would questions are you going to ask about this thing? So I can arm them. And, And then also, it's a little bit of coaching to be like, we're at day one. We're at day mm-hmm. zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not going to know the answers to all the questions. Yeah. Here's eight we've anticipated. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we're going to do is back to your journey. We're going to mm-hmm. go on a journey here next 90 days. Uh, every 30 days, we're going to touch base, share our information, and we're going to evolve just a little bit together. You know, So now all of a sudden, it's not uh, scary that I don't know. It's exciting because I'm bringing back to my whole team, mm-hmm. hey, I got this uh, question or objection, mm-hmm. and here's what I said. And then somebody else, hey, here's what I said. And we're sort of pooling knowledge and like, man, I really liked how Jennifer said that. That was great. I'm going to use that. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I saw Luther do the webinar on this thing, and I never thought about that angle. I'm going to take that. So we're all just evolving together uh, with intentional meetings every 30 days so that at the end of 90 days, we've sort of worked out the kinks. I mean, there, there'll be always changes, but we've kind of landed on the formulas like, hey, let's maybe not position it with these three ways. We thought that was going to be good, but right, right. it wasn't. Uh, but people are really interested in this, this, and this. Um, when, when you're launching a product, do you ever tweak compensation? Like, you know, first... 20 sales yes, get double yes, commissions. Yes, for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You try to uh, make that a point? I, re- I read an article once that said, you know, the CEO's job is to, to help make sure the first 15 sales come in. And I really liked that concept. <laughs> you know? I like that idea I too. I consider myself, mm-hmm. I'm not the CEO, I'm like a right. mini CEO, but right. I have a piece of the business within the business. And, mm-hmm. and I always make sure with our big product launches that I'm in there, that mm-hmm. I'm in there on the meetings. I've been in, I just launched a new product. So again, with that roadmap, mm-hmm. it's not just about responding to an emergency, is to say the next innovation in U.S. healthcare is Let's prevent that from ever happening. There's 400,000 people a year that die uh, preventable deaths that, that really are clinical deterioration related. It's mm-hmm. uh, They're declining and it wasn't caught in time. And it's the type of thing that you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Like if you're waiting for a hospital system to alert you, it will do that. But mm-hmm. by the time it alerts you that they're declining, it's really too late to go back in time and put them in a better situation. So the time to really start that process is when they get admitted mm-hmm. and you need a framework to really understand uh, what am I looking for? You know, mm-hmm. and so the sort of operating system question is uh, how can Mr. Smith die today? You know, how could he decline? Yeah. And I'm thinking that in advance, but I've been trained in this program that says, Hey, it's not infinite. The number of ways people can die in hospitals It's there's 15 fatal conditions and uh, really all of them boil down to four pathways. And any of those four pathways can lead to cardiac arrest, and death. Which way is uh, Mr. Smith on? Oh, he's in a circulatory um, decline. And so, therefore, I'm going to look for these certain things showing up. And if they happen, I'm going to run diagnostic tests. I'm going to intervene in the correct way. And so, uh, we've we've partnered with a doctor out in, from California that created this brilliant program mm-hmm. and uh, has worked with 11 different hospitals and achieved amazing results and published the data of those in several scientific journals that say he can reduce by 50% the amount of uh, cardiac arrests that are happening in non-ICU units. And so, yeah, yeah so it's there. We have the formula. Right. Um, and so part of, part of the process is, is really engaging people about that. So um, the cynical part of me is going to jump in for just a second. So are the hospital, will they make more money if fewer people die? Yeah, it's interesting when you say it this way. The cynical person in me says we're almost to the point with this uh, data that we've collected where we can say – 
this is if you implement something like this, you can expect to save this more many lives. And right. some CFO somewhere may be calculating, is it worth it? Right. Which is awful to think about. Well, I mean, um, we're not paid for outcomes. Um, and I think one of the things that really helps adoption of, of changes in, in healthcare is a regulatory tailwind. Um, and one of the things that really prevents uh, um, innovation in healthcare is a reimbursement headwind. Um, and so is there, um, I want to, our purpose is to, is there, it's sort of debatable, the American, I'm, I'm trying to get to the end of the podcast, I know I'm talking about this, but it's sort of debatable in the American healthcare system, but what is the purpose of healthcare? Um, and so I, I have a presentation I give to people who are salespeople selling into hospitals. And the first slide in the presentation is that uh, the purpose of the American healthcare system is not to make people well, it's to produce a bill and get paid. Um, now, that's, you know, it makes clinicians want to vomit. Uh, it makes me want to vomit. But I think that um, the people who operate hospitals look at it that way. I mean, it's the classic no margin, no mission. Um, and no mission, no mission. But um, anyway, so I think being able to explain why is it in people's interest to reduce the number of deaths by 400,000 in their economic interest. Yeah, I mean, if you're talking to a risk management officer, a financial mm -hmm. officer, there mm -hmm. are several pieces of that educational mm -hmm. program and operating system approach, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, that tie directly back to the value-based purchasing formula that you're talking about, which is to say, if you can reduce overall mortality, your profit margins in your hospital will be better. So mm -hmm. there's sort of a, a case in all cases that's a, emotional in nature, which is like, hey, this is the right, right thing, thing to, to do. do. Yeah. Uh, there's also a clinical <laughs> case to be made to say, you know, that not this many people need to die from sepsis because this is catchable. And uh, and then there's also a financial sort of data <laughs> risk mm. case. Um, I do mm. agree with you. I've spent probably five or six years of my life, uh, you know, more on the health side of things, what I would call, mm -hmm. um, what does it really look like to be healthy and eat healthy and exercise mm -hmm. and yeah, why you like, want to that sort of things. And a lot of people in that industry really can refer to what we call in the healthcare industry as a disease care industry. You know? so, <laughs> and it makes sense. It makes right. sense I, get, yes. I get your point, what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like well, if you really look at it, like when I, if I were to go into our industry and healthcare mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and say that that I help prevent prevent clinical deterioration, uh, they're going to think about what the program actually does, which is in you know looking at all these risk factors and mm -hmm. disease decline. Mm -hmm. If I went to back to my old health community and said that, they'd be like, okay, you're going to stop eating cheeseburgers, right? Because right, <laughs> that's right. really declining. That's the cause. That's preventing. Yeah, you're yes. going back more to the root cause of how we ended up in the hospital declining. Yeah. Well, I think we should come back and have a conversation about health. We that, probably need a whole different podcast to, yeah, that's to what focus I'm on that theme. That's right. That'd be fun. Well, Luther, it was a lot of lot of fun having you. I appreciate you coming. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm here anytime. I'd love to do it again. Fortune's Path podcast is a production of Fortune's Path. We help technology businesses create products that generate monopoly profits. Fractional product management, product leadership coaching, competitive intelligence. Find your genius with Fortune's Path. Special thanks to Luther Kale for being our guest. Music and editing of the Fortune's Path podcast are by my son, Ted Noser. Look for the Fortune's Path book from Advantage Books on fortunespath.com. 
I'm Tom Nozer. Thanks for listening, and I hope we meet along Fortune's path.